What's the weirdest book that you've ever read? What's the weirdest book you've ever had? Perhaps you're not a big reader, perhaps every book for you is slightly weird. Um, I found some uh, a strange book when I was looking at the 20p shop in Otley. I don't know if you've come across that one. This is uh, Scuba Diving with Annika Rice. Uh, I thought that was probably one of the most random books, one of the weirdest books I've come across. I do confess I haven't actually read it yet, um, but having never done scuba diving, nor having any intention to do scuba diving, for me it's quite a weird book. And there are some pretty strange uh, biographies, aren't there, out there. You often find, don't you, with uh, stars, when they've, they've come to fame, uh, they get a biography written or they release their autobiography. And you still think, well, you haven't really done that much. You know, you, you've, got, you've won X Factor and you're like 17 or something and they release their autobiography. I bet that's a really weird read. How do you fill out those things? You know, it must be all their lessons at school uh, sort of listed off as they go along. But the Gospels have to go in there, don't they, as some of the weirdest books uh, to our Western eyes. If you take them as biographies, they're pretty strange. Partly because they focus not massively on Jesus' life, but on Jesus' death. If you think of most biographies that you might have read, or, or those things you've watched on the television, often their death is sort of a bit of a footnote, uh, really, to what's happening. But in Matthew's Gospel, well, Jesus' death is mentioned at 12 chapters before the end. That's quite a long way. Uh, and the last week of Jesus' life, you know, he has 33 years, the last week of his life, takes up more than a third of the gospel. So really, it's focusing in on Jesus' death. But why is that? Well, Christians believe that Jesus' death and resurrection are the central point of history. Most leaders of world religions have their birth celebrated, don't they? But Jesus has his death celebrated. Really, it's his death that splits the Bible in two. Old Covenant, Old Testament, New Covenant, New Testament. Really, it's his death that splits history in two, isn't it? Okay, technically that was Christmas for us, wasn't it, that split uh, history in two. But biblically speaking, it's his death that splits history in part. It's so important. And Matthew wants us to see here not just uh, the details, not only just the cruelty and horror of the cross. Really, he wants us to see the significance of the cross. And Matthew records some details for us which are there to help us understand not just what happened at the cross, but the significance of what happened at the cross. Now, I should say, as we read Matthew's Gospel, compared to some of the other Gospels, some parts might seem quite fantastical. Uh, But we're going to see as we go along that that's actually part of Matthew showing us what is happening. Those things really did happen, but Matthew is using them to show us what's going on. We're going to look at this in three parts. And in the middle, we're going to remember Jesus' death. Uh, by sharing bread and wine together as well as part of uh, our remembering of Jesus' death this morning before we move on to the the resurrection. But you'll find it helpful to have your Bible open. And our first heading uh, is 45 to 50, the end. I'll read it to us again. So that's Matthew 27, 45 to 50. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemasak. Sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them ran at once and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So the first thing we see there is that darkness falls across the land. 
don't think we need to read this as being across the whole earth. Um, it, the word there can mean land or earth. So I think really we just get the picture of the land. But that's still an amazing thing. Even if it wasn't the whole earth, that's pretty amazing. Jewish Passover, when this is happening, happens when there's a new moon. That's, that's how they decide when it happens. The new moon, I, I don't know much about astronomy, but that's when the moon is the furthest away from the sun. The reason that it's not there, the reason that it's black, is because the earth is casting its shadow on the moon. So in other words, the moon is, is, it's not the moon that's getting in the way of the sun. That would mean it would have to be on the opposite side of the earth from where we know that it was. So this is not a solar eclipse that we're talking about here. This is something miraculous. And not only is it miraculous that what takes place, but it's when it takes place. It said it took place at the sixth hour. Now if you've got a footnote there in your Bible, it tells you that's noon. That's midday. That's when the sun is at its strongest. Isn't it? They say don't they, mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. Because that's when the sun is at its strongest. So here we see actually this the sun is being taken out at midday, at noon. And it's not just for a few seconds, it lasts for three hours. Do you see that there in verse 45? Until the ninth hour. Uh, I don't know if you remember the solar eclipse that happened, the total eclipse back in 1999. Uh, I remember me and some friends actually took a road trip all the way down to Cornwall uh, to actually see the, the, the proper total solar eclipse. But I've got to admit, it was a bit of an anticlimax because, well, you're told you're not allowed to directly look at it, so you sort of had to look at it on a bit of paper and, you know, newspapers were, were giving these things away where you could sort of look at the sun. And it lasted for about, you know, three or four seconds, not three hours. And actually, it was quite cloudy. So we think we just about saw it, but most of the rest of the country couldn't see it at all. That's, that's quite normal for a solar eclipse, though. That's what's normal for those things. But here, this lasts for three hours. Three hours. That must have been terrifying if you were in that situation. What on earth is going on as the sun stops giving its light to the land? But this isn't the first time that this has happened. If you look on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see there are some verses printed there. You'll see Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. This is during the plagues in Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. This is one of the plagues before Passover. This would have been in the run-up to what they're celebrating at the time when Jesus is dying. This was a sign of God's anger at Egypt. God dispensing judgment on them for mistreating his people. And this time it's happening as Jesus hangs on a cross. So we've got to ask the question, if this was a punishment for Egypt, well, is Jesus in the wrong? Has Jesus done something wrong on the scale of the Egyptians? But if you've been here over the last few weeks, we've been seeing again and again that the answer is no. Throughout the gospel, even the pagans who were trying, you know, Pilate who was uh, trying to find accusation or the, the leaders who were trying to find accusation couldn't find anything. Pilate thought that he was innocent. Pilate's wife called him righteous. Pilate washed his hands of what was about to happen. Nobody was able to find a charge against him other than a, a twisted misquotation of something that he'd said. Now, if this had been me in that position, there would have been plenty of people uh, probably able to come forward and say, yes, that, that person hurt me. 
things, you know, be able to tell them things that I'd done. But Jesus, he was totally innocent. Jesus is innocent of all wrongdoing. That's been clear all the way through. So why is he being punished? Why is he seemingly under God's anger? Well, here as he hangs on the cross, he's being punished for the wrongdoing of others. Jesus, the God-man, takes the punishment from God for man. Jesus is dying as mankind's substitute. That's what the darkness is showing us. But the darkness is not the only detail uh, in this. Do you see there the cry we see in uh, verse 46? And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out from the cross. Now, in the Gospels, it's well known among some that there are seven sayings that Jesus says on the cross. But Matthew here, he just gives us one. One saying. He wants us to focus there. And the quote that he gives us from Jesus is actually a quote from Psalm 22. And if you look on the back of your sheets, you've got it printed out there. Part, part, another part of the psalm. This was King David, who's crying out a thousand years before Looking forward to this time. Listen to this and see if it seems familiar with what's going on. Psalm 22, 14 to 18. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So as Jesus cries out to his father on the cross, what comes to mind is this psalm. Actually, it's got amazing details of Jesus' crucifixion. But the real force behind it is, why have you forsaken me? This is the only time in the synoptic gospels, in the Matthew, Mark, Luke Matthew, Mark and Luke, where Jesus doesn't call God Father. He just calls him my God. But it helps us understand the emotional and spiritual anguish of the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I remember a few years ago chatting to a friend uh, about the gospel and explained that Jesus had died on the cross to, to pay the penalty for our sins. And he said that he felt that Jesus had got a, a bit of a, an easy ride, really, or that God certainly had. Because he said the cross is far too easy. You know, three hours on a cross, and then he dies. And then actually he comes back to life again. So what really has he lost? And actually people have died more gruesome deaths than Jesus. I mean, he had uh, one day of torture, whereas some people have had years of torture. And during the time he was dead, he was in heaven anyway. But that's to misunderstand what's really going on on the cross. Actually, it misunderstands the cosmic pain of the cross. For those three hours that Jesus was on the cross, what this cry shows us is that Jesus lost his father's smiling face. The perfect love that Jesus had enjoyed from beyond eternity was lost for those three hours. Now, it doesn't split the Trinity. That's one of those misunderstandings. But it did see God the Son distance from God the Father relationally. It showed them uh, God pouring out his anger rather than his love on the Son. 
And he was separated from God the Father in a way. I don't know if you've heard of uh, separation anxiety. Uh, often that happens with, uh, with young children. You know, they, they get hold of mum's leg and they just won't let go. And whenever you leave the room, they start screaming. I don't know if you've experienced that yourself. Well, maybe not the, the screaming bit, but, you know, being the person who's grabbed onto. But imagine if you've been with your father or your mother forever. Imagine if you've been perfectly loved by them forever. And then you've got to go through a time when they're not there. Now, if a toddler finds that traumatic, when they've only known their parents even a few days, imagine how Jesus felt when he'd known his father from beyond eternity. So actually, something big is going on here. Something emotional is going on. Something spiritual is going on on the cross. He experienced separation from his father. And if you think about it, separation from the father, separation from God, well, that's how we talk about hell, isn't it? Jesus experienced hell on the cross in that way. The anger of his father. And again, he'd experienced the comforts of heaven, hadn't he? So he'd come from the comforts of heaven to the pains of hell. It's a bit like it can feel cold sometimes when you walk into a room, can't it? But it feels even colder if you've come from a hot room. Or vice versa, if you, know, you, you walk into a room where you've been uh, nicely, nicely warmed and you go out and it's freezing cold, uh, you really feel it, don't you? Well, Jesus experienced that difference as well. He experienced more than we would. So if Jesus experienced hell on the cross, that might explain why this was enough. So my friend was wrong. It's not just uh, another death. It's not that people have died worse deaths. Actually, Jesus experienced hell on the cross, separation from God the Father, God the Father's anger on himself. That's what's happening. And we see that by that cry. But again, that's not the only detail, is it? We see also that the bystanders stand by. Look at verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. They think he's calling Elijah. That might be because that phrase that's quite difficult to say, Eli, Eli, Lama Sakpathani. Um, they might have taken that as meaning Elijah, Eli. Uh, to many Jews, Elijah was a helper in times of need. Uh, he hadn't died in the Old Testament, he had ascended into heaven, so was able to come back down to help people. That's what people believed. A bit like many Roman Catholics talk about Mary in a similar way. Some of these bystanders go on to offer him sour wine in that context. Now, this wasn't a sedative, so before the crucifixion, he was offered uh, sour wine mixed with gall. That was to sort of sedate him, but he refused that. Here it seems that this sour wine is in mockery of Jesus. This was the regular drink of a Roman soldier. So it's not, it might seem a little bit weird for us to be drinking sour wine. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? But that was the drink of the time. Perhaps it was unpopular with the Jews, you know, the, the, the drink of the oppressor. Perhaps it mocked his claim to be God. I mean, God is, is sufficient, isn't he? But here he is crying out for help, crying out to his God. If you want a drink, do you? It might be like that. They're offering it to him. So they're mocking him. They're standing by, passively letting him get on with the crucifixion. But even that drink is denied him as others call him to stop. They want to see whether Elijah will come and rescue him. Isn't that interesting? They seem to believe that Jesus might have Elijah come and rescue him. 
Good enough for that, but not good enough to do anything about him hung there in agony, not even allowing him a drink. And then finally we see in that section that Jesus dies. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He cries out and then he gives up his spirit. Now that word yielded up, it's a positive decision. It seems as though Jesus is in control right to the end. He yields his spirit. It isn't taken from him. Augustine wrote that he gave up his life because he willed it, when he willed it, and as he willed it. This was a choice that Jesus was making. His work was done at this point. He'd borne the terrible weight of sin. He'd been punished for a world's wrongdoing, past, present, and future. And Jesus wants us to remember his death. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to pause in the middle of the talk just to share bread and wine together. To remember that Jesus died. That his body was broken. uh, That his blood was shed for our forgiveness. uh, So that we could be right with God. He was separated so that we might be brought near. So let me pray for the bread and wine and then we'll, we'll share those together. Let's pray. Father, we'll thank you for the gift of the cross. Father, thank you that... You would send him to die for us. Father, as we've seen these details of people who stood by and scorned, uh, Father, we pray that you'd help us not to do the same. Father, as we see people who passively uh, pass by the cross, Father, help us not to do that, but help us to remember what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross and what that means for us. So, Father, we pray that you'd make us thankful in our hearts for Jesus' death, in Jesus' name. Thank you for the blood that was shed. Father, thank you that although... There are the details that tell us the meaning. Father, thank you that you, um, in the person of your son, experienced the suffering. Uh, Father, thank you that uh, it's not just um, a remembrance thing for you, Father, but you uh, went through it in your son. So thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to carry on and look at a few of the implications. So the beginning, verses 51 to 54. First... uh, implication if you like of this is that the temple is opened so verse 51 and behold the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom so you see here that the temple is opened the temple was where people went to meet with god and the curtain well that's the curtain between the holy of holies and the rest of the temple uh, it was a big get out sign, if you like, a bit stop sign that was in the temple saying this far but no further. Only one person was allowed to go through that curtain and only once a year. It was like this far but no further. But the curtain being torn shows us that access to God has been opened up. This is what is happening at the cross. It's not through the resurrection here, but actually Jesus' death that opens the temple, if you like, opens the way to God. As we look through these, we'll see actually there's lots of good news things that happen at the, uh, the crucifixion. Sometimes we can over-egg the resurrection. I don't know if you come across that, you know, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. There is some truth to that. But really, that Friday's a good day as well. Good Friday was a good thing. Because actually, by Jesus' death here, the way is opened to God. He was separated from God on the cross so that we don't have to be separated. He took our separation And it was torn from top to bottom. So this wasn't man working the way through the temple, if you like, getting into God. This was God opening the temple 
for man. He did what we could never do. So the temple is open, and then we see that the earth is opened. Have a look at the second part of verse 51. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. There's an earthquake. Now this happens at various times in the Bible, in various different ways. Often it's a sign of the the coming of the Lord. A sign of the day of the Lord, judgment approaching. So on the back of your sheets there you'll see Amos 8, at 7 to 10, which again picks up a lot of the themes that we're, we're looking at. So the Lord had sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. That's describing the day of the Lord. But can you see how many things are happening at the cross uh, that fit in with what it's saying? The judgment of the day of the Lord is falling on Jesus. But actually, most of these things that happen just after the cross have a more positive side to them, don't they? And I wonder whether the rocks being split gives it more of a positive feel. It seems like a bit of a strange detail to add, isn't it? There's an earthquake and the rocks split open. God splits open rocks in the Bible to give water to his people. So uh, Psalm 78, I don't think I had space for this on the back of the sheet. It says, he splits rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. The New Testament tells us that when he splits those rocks, it's a picture of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 10 uh, verse 4, you'll see it there on the back of your sheet. And all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So since the other images here are positive, I wonder whether it's possible that this is what it's trying to get at. The streams of living water, if you like, are opened by Christ's death as the rocks are split apart. So the earth is opened, and that brings this stream of living water as well, though, the tombs are opened. Do you see that there in uh, verse 52? The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This is only mentioned in Matthew's Gospel. But we said in the previous weeks, haven't we, that the, the death and resurrection of Jesus was going to be a foretaste of the end. It was that jargony word, eschatological to do with the end of time. Now, there's a debate over the phrasing here, but here we have these saints who rise, like it's the end. It's like a foretaste of the end of time, the the general resurrection, if you like. There's a debate over the phrasing, like I say, but it seems as though they, they came out at his death and they appeared after his resurrection. But is this a miracle too far? It's not corroborated by other sources, And again, neither is it contradicted. It does sound quite fantastical, doesn't it? I was asked at a lunch bar, uh, that's uh, a thing at university where you sort of have a lunch, give them free food uh, and tell them the gospel um, and hope they don't live. One person once left after the free food, but most people do stay. Um, But I was speaking to someone at a lunch bar and he asked a question at the end and said, surely you just made this up. I I can believe the darkness. I can believe the earthquake. But graves opening, resurrected people walking around. But my question back to him was, why would you add it? Why would you add this detail? 
There's enough fantastical stuff going on, isn't there? And if you're trying to prove something amazing, you don't add things that are even more amazing if you're making it up, do you? So think about UFO sightings. Uh, You often find, don't you, that somebody would say, well, I was driving home, usually from the pub. I was driving home and, you know, I looked in the sky and there was this big light and I saw a UFO. It never starts, does it? You know, I was was going home on my rocket pack uh, and just getting back to my house. You don't make up other things that are fantastical to prove something that's uh, amazing, do you? Actually, you make it sound as ordinary as you, you can if you're making it up. But Matthew isn't making it up, is he? You certainly wouldn't add this thing if it wasn't uh, something that was so verifiable. So you could go to people in Jerusalem and say, were there, were there dead people walking around? You'd make it up so that it was something secret that nobody saw. So why would you add it? And then the question came back, well, why didn't the Jews all believe after seeing it? I mean, it's, you're going to start to wonder what you've done if all these dead people start walking around in your city. And my answer back was a lot of them did. 3,000 in one day, only a few weeks after this. People rising from the dead wouldn't tell you that Jesus was the Christ, but it would certainly tell you something huge had just happened. And when Peter speaks at Pentecost, they understand the implications of what is happening. What happened to these people? Well, uh, these bodies, we don't know. They may have ascended into heaven. They don't seem to have been around for very long. We certainly don't see them walking around uh, today. But their appearing shows us what the cross accomplished. Jesus' death broke death. His death even raised the dead then and there, if you like. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? Jesus' death has broken the power of death. We no longer need to fear death because of Jesus, if we trust in him. We know that our resurrection is sure at the end. We can see that people raised from the dead even then and there. Not by just his resurrection, but by his death. So the tombs are open. That's something really positive for us to to see. And then finally in this section, eyes are opened. Eyes are opened. Look at at verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. A Roman soldier sees the death, sees the earthquake, and concludes that the taunts that he's heard at the cross were correct. Jesus really is the Son of God. And the fact that this this soldier sees this at this point again gives us hope. This is a soldier, a pagan soldier, not a Jew. He's been involved with Jesus' death, literally. We talk about sometimes us all being responsible. He was actually there watching He was actually involved in the crucifixion. But if he can recognise who Jesus is, when the leaders of the Jews couldn't, then there's hope, isn't there? It's as though God has supernaturally opened his eyes as Jesus dies. And that is the power of the cross. It not only pays for our sin, but it opens our eyes as well. The Bible says that we're naturally blinded to the things of God. It's as though... Excuse those sort of graphic imagery, but it's as though we've gouged our own eyes out and we can't see. But the cross gives us new eyes to see who Jesus really is. And Matthew is showing us that by showing us the remarks of this Roman soldier. So all these things show us that the, the death of Jesus really is a new beginning. Eyes open, 
access to God. So that now we can have the greatest gift of all. God as our Father. A new relationship with him. And the forgiveness of our sins. And all that's from Jesus' death. This is before the resurrection. No wonder we call Good Friday Good Friday. We're not on Good Friday though, are we? We're on Easter Sunday. And things are going to get even better. Um, We're going to look at this section more briefly. Uh, We'll look at it again tonight. Um, But uh, we're going to just briefly look at Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10, the bombshell. Just for a few moments, because it is Easter Sunday rather than Good Friday. I'll read it to us. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, uh, risen, as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. What we're talking about here is Jesus' literal, physical resurrection. And it's a bombshell whose shockwaves are still working their way through our world. The scene is set, isn't it? Sunday morning, the two Marys go to the tomb. On the way, there's another earthquake, an angel of the Lord descending to the earth. The stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty, and the angel announces that Christ is risen. Now, on the way to tell the other disciples, they meet the risen Christ. What do they do as they meet Christ? Well, they worship, don't they? They worship. There's a surprise. Not many folks did that while Jesus was alive, did they? But now they get the right response to Jesus, now that the eyes are opened. Now, when it says they worshipped him, I don't imagine it means that one of the Marys got out a guitar and started singing Kumbaya. They don't even, or they probably didn't even sing At Your Feet We Fall, Mighty Risen Lord, which would be quite appropriate, really, for the time, wouldn't it? They actually fall at his feet. That's what it's talking about here. That's what the idea of worship is in the Bible. They grab his feet. No, this is no ghost. This is no apparition. He's physically there. The word worship that's used here has to do with a dog and its master. Their master is here and they worship him. Now, if this was a mere man, we'd call it idolatry, wouldn't we? Worshipping a person. But Jesus is no mere man. He's God himself. So the right response is worship. That's the outcome of the, the resurrection. Not, much, not so much singing your heart out, but singing out of your heart. Living a life that says, here I am, master. A life spent at Jesus' pierced feet, doing his will, honouring him with our lives, with our words, with our songs as well. That's what real worship is about. And as we look at Jesus' death and resurrection, that's the right response to Jesus. If you want to find out what that looks like, why not take a bit of time over the rest of the Easter holidays, if you have any holidays. 
Or if you're retired, you can just use all that spare time that you've got, uh, <laughs> supposedly. Um, why not read through Matthew's Gospel? See what Jesus says about what that looks like to live for him, to honour Jesus with your life. Now, singing is not all of worship. It's part of worship, if we mean it. 